0: Okay, hello everyone. Um, My name is Diego De Soto. I'm guest hosting on Michael Osterling's uh, podcast. Uh, I'm a Peruvian-Italian social entrepreneur, writer, and freelance journalist. I was educated in international economics at Georgetown University in uh, Washington, D.C. I have worked in my field at the World Bank uh, in strategic communications at uh, one of the Guggenheim Foundations. And at Peru's Diplomatic Academy in uh, Lima. I uh, currently live in Barcelona, Spain, from where I promote transpartisan issues internationally and contribute articles to international media. I have also written a novel entitled The Saddest Eyes, which I'm currently seeking to publish. And today we're going to be interviewing a transpartisan luminary, which is uh, particularly exciting for me. Uh, It's uh, Jim Turner. Uh, Jim is uh, a founding partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm of Swankin and Turner and is co-founder and co-executive editor of the Transpartisan Review. As one of the original Nader's Raiders, he directed the project and wrote the report, The Chemical Feast, the Ralph Nader Study Group Report on Food Protection and the Food and Drug Administration. He has served as the board chair of citizens for health and voice for hope uh, hope standing for healers of planet earth he has appeared before every major consumer regulatory agency including the food and drug administration the environmental protection agency the consumer product safety commission and the federal trade commission as well as the department of agriculture and the national institutes of health he considers himself a progressive Democrat, but uh, he's definitely open to other ideas as a transpartisan, and we're going to explore that more in this podcast. So, Jim, I thought we could start um, by discussing uh, one of the aspects of your current work, which uh, you're you're quite excited about, I think, and it's called the Solutions Voter Strategy. Um, can you describe a bit what it is and um, how it works in terms of a transpartisan approach for members of our audience that aren't that familiar with uh, the transpartisan approach? Uh,
1: yes, the um, the solution voter strategy uh, is uh, an activity that is being organized by a, a number of individuals many of whom are fairly significant uh, develop, uh, contributors to uh, campaigns, political campaigns across the country. Uh, they are both Democrats and Republicans and independents, and they uh, have come together with uh, significant resources to examine the way that our voting system is structured and to find out how to move away from the continued partisan bickering and undermining of policy. So that's the basic premise. Um, It's built around, and by the way, uh, people can read uh, the careful presentation of this by Bill Shireman uh, on our website, the Transpartisan Review. You can Google the Transpartisan Review, and you'll find an article there which is uh, overcoming our partisan divide, basically. the, the premise is built around some uh, ideas that Laurie Chickering and I have been putting forward in the Transpartisan Review. The ideas start in this way. First, in today's American electorate, 70% of the public does not identify with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. So that we have a situation in which 30% of the eligible voters, and by eligible voters, we mean constitutionally eligible, 30% of them are identifying either as Republicans or Democrats, and they roughly divide something around 15% on each side. And it's uh, it's, uh, between between, um, 14 and 16% in any given election.
0: And when I say any given election, I mean all the
1: way down to the local dog catcher. And every election is like this. Now, the point that we make in the Transpartisan Review and what is uh, presented in that Solution Voter uh, article that sets it out is that the current idea of dividing all political issues into two parts is a mistake. Let's just say proposition A. We have proposition A and proposition not A, and then we fight. The difficulty is that there's never only two. There's never only two sides to any issue. Uh, I'm talking now logically, operationally, uh, and aspirationally. All all issues have at least three and perhaps more sides. There's always A. Uh, a not A, and not A divides into those people who are either for, for not, let, let's do it this way. There's A and not A. Not A divides into everything that is from B to Z. The big question for us politically is how do we find out what the B through Z aspect of the culture desires at any given moment? Solution Voters is built around a program that was designed and used by the Solution, solution Voter Group, which is those uh, high, high contributor Democrats and Republicans and independents, designed a way of doing demographics on the population to find the people who are interested in solving any given problem. And it's laid out uh, in the article very carefully, and we say that rather than a spectrum from left to right, our politics is inside a matrix, which is left, right, order, freedom, so that we have people on both the left and the right who are interested in both order and freedom. The most interesting, the, the important political point is how do we integrate left, right, order, freedom? The trans the uh, solution voter uh, uh, algorithm that's been developed looks at the electorate the way that a Democrat would, or a Republican would, or an independent, or third party. But it's designed so that you will have the emerging individual be a quote solution voter, somebody who's looking for a solution, and this rests upon our underlying premise that is myself and Lori Chickering, our underlying premise that two people with a differing point of view who agree to talk with each other, two or more, who agree to talk with each other, will almost invariably come up with some new idea or new approach that neither one of them was able to come up with independently. And then that becomes something to work for as a political process. Now, the Solution Voter Initiative, uh, has run several elections this is all spelled out as has participated in several elections. Uh, the one I like the best is when they were it was a california primary uh, uh, for uh, uh, Congress and uh, two Democrats uh, one on one fairly far to the left and one uh, would be called a solution voter and by the way, you could be left right um, medium green orange yellow, whatever, and still be a solution voter It it is not has nothing to do with your politics as a substantive issue. It has to do with your willingness and ability and skill to interact with people of a multiplicity of what points of view. In this particular primary, the two two individuals ran together, ran, ran in the primary. The solution voter won, the solution voter activity was undertaken in this campaign. The solution voter won, the loser, went to the next district. In the next election, they won in that district. And then the two of them became allies on a series of initiatives that went on uh, in that next round of of governing. So the the point, go back to underlying the key point that it's all looking for, and that is 70% of the population is not articulated in the current political debates. They are essentially Excluded. They, they, when I say excluded, they are not part of the actual electorate that is debating. By the way, that's structural. That's not that's not uh, emotional or uh, subjective. It's structural. You are not allowed in virtually any state to have. Uh, they're, they're, these are all under change now. But they're, generally speaking, you're not allowed to vote in the primary of a party for w- which you are not a member. So already 70% of the public is gone because they aren't members of any political party. That's one of the things that needs to be adjusted and is working its way through. There's, all, there's ways of addressing all of these points. Uh, so the first thing, 70%, give them a voice. The way you give them a voice is you don't organize around uh, a party around a set of 10 or 15 or 20 issues. I mean, you can said so there's no problem with doing that but you need to be able from a political process to pull together people from all the different angles and bring them together in some way. So you need people in each one of those very areas to be able to participate in the discussion that is going to undertake on whatever issue. The key point is that there are individuals. The the, the idea is that when you do the matrix, you have quadrants, you have four quadrants. Each individual will find themselves in a different place in the four quadrants on each issue so that a person might be very strongly opposed to the government interfering in taking away guns, put that in quotation marks, taking away guns, but very anxious to have the government interfere in taking away the right to have an abortion. And so an individual who has those two ideas does not fit into our current political structure. And they, that would need to be examined and looked at. And by the way, that's true of every single issue. And you can look something up on the uh, internet called Arrow's Paradox. Arrow's Paradox. Uh, Kenneth Arrow was the winner of what's called the uh, Economic Nobel Prize. Uh, in ni- I believe it was 1971 for Arrow's Paradox, which says that you cannot ascertain what a group desires by aggregating the individual desires of each person in the group. And you can see it laid out logically. And that the premise that we can have a winner-take-all election and come up with an answer on every issue that the people voting will be happy with underlies an, enor- we, we are arguing with this, underlies an enormous amount of the difficulty that we have in a partisan way. This is structural partisan partisanism. It is not individuals mindlessly acting in a foolish way that's against their own interest. It is structural uh, uh, partisanism. So uh, that's a a very quick summary. Uh, uh, The details are laid out in uh, Bill Shireman's article in uh, the Transpartisan Review. And uh, I I believe it's something that would be worthwhile for people to read. And incidentally, uh, solution voters are not necessarily outside the Democratic or Republican parties. There are solution voters there as well, so that we're actually talking about something larger than uh, the 70%. Uh, We have all the people who are groping and saying, look, some things I agree with the Democrats, some things I agree with the Republicans. How do I, who do I vote for? I have to vote for one or the other. Who do I vote for? some of the people who are in the democratic or republican party feel that way as well and by the way you can see this sorting itself out in the current campaign as people who carry a party label are showing up in the in the den of people who have a different party label and so you see you can see that going on now that's a very uh, perhaps long uh, long-winded uh, answer but it does give you a framework of what it is that we're talking about when we say transpartisan the Transpartisan Review and Solution Voters.
0: Mm. Not at all. I, I don't think it's, it's a long-winded at all. I think it does justice to the richness of the idea because it's a very substantive idea and it integrates <laughs> a lot of points of view, which I think is very important. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of take us through um, the process of reaching out to a Solution Voter. How does that work on the ground? Well, I, I guess I
1: left out one of the
0: most important aspects,
1: and that is that serious uh, uh, resources have been put into the development of a, a, a an algorithm, a program, to find out um, to, to identify where a solution voter might stand in a uh, in a given election. Uh, doing uh, doing. Uh, Voter research, just as if you were research for a political party. Uh, then, uh, at the same time, uh, create, that, that will create you a set of ideas or a set of programs in a given campaign that will allow you to look at um, who the candidates are. And then what happens is the candidates begin to learn uh, how to articulate their, the positions that they're interested in In ways that solution voters can hear, and then you start getting a dynamic going. Um, I can I can give you an example of uh, an event that occurred. uh, A lot of a lot of effort has gone into this uh, over the years, and um, there was a um, uh, a a man who was a a a logician, a thinker, Arthur Gilman in uh, in uh, Canada, who uh, who worked on logic. How does logic work in Political campaigns, and um, he uh, his in, his impact was first felt in uh, a a an election in Manitoba for the chief minister of Manitoba, and uh, what occurred uh, the very strong, very uh, well entrenched uh, incumbent was running for office on um, the. Ticket of or the campaign of strong, steady, firm, capable—all of the kinds of things that were his his trademark. They ran. Uh, this is back uh, in the in the 80s, actually. They, they ran a cam. They ran an analysis using logic, and determined uh, that the public, while they did like the st- the strongness of the person's position they were nervous about the likelihood of somebody with that kind of strength and that kind of power intervening in a way that wouldn't affect their lives negatively. A, uh, a, 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 mousy, Mr. Peeper's professor type guy with glasses ran against him. All the pundits positions was slam dunk there. Actually, I don't think at that point had ever been a, a chief minister of a, of a province in Canada who had not been reelected if they ran. Uh, and, um, they did the logic and came up with the idea, the observation that the people who we would now call the solution voter people were very nervous about authoritarian power in the hands of the chief minister. And so the campaign that was run by the college professor was run about how uh, you know, security is important, but freedom is, even, uh, is equally important. And that particular argument won that election, much to the surprise of everyone. And uh, there, the my my suspicion, I have not, uh, I don't know what the algorithm is that has been determined for the solution voters, but my suspicion is that it is based on that kind of logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did that, did that answer your question adequately? Uh,
0: definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, um, Speaking more to this um, question that you mentioned in Canada about security versus freedom, I was wondering if you could um, elaborate a little more on uh, the transpartisan matrix and this idea of freedom left and freedom right and order uh, left and order right and so on and so forth, just to give audience members who aren't so familiar with the idea uh, a deeper understanding of. Of the way it functions.
1: Uh, yes, I can. But uh, uh, let me just before I, I start answering myself, just can say that uh, Bill Shireman, who is an advisor uh, to the uh, on the advisory board of the Transpartisan Review, <clears throat> very uh, very active, uh, 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 moderate Republican, uh, presenter of uh, environmental issues and also organizing. Uh, students across the country and so forth around these ideas has laid this out with some care in his article on solution voters. And then, if you go to the Transpartisan Review, uh, there are a number of articles with specific examples, and there are also articles with uh, with policy alternatives and so forth. Uh, and various people working away at uh, at answering uh, the questions that you're asking. So, um, so we we have. We have created something called the transpartisan matrix. That matrix has a uh, it has a horizontal axis, which is uh, the uh, the order freedom. The, I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, right left axis, and then it has a vertical axis, which is the order freedom axis. And what happens on any particular issue? is that each individual voter on that particular issue is somewhere on that matrix. And uh, so you'll have people, as I I mentioned, on gun control and abortion, two of the most contentious issues we have. You will find people on both sides of the left-right spectrum uh, who are arguing for uh, freedom or intervention. So you end up with people who are what we would call in the parlance of the daily daily, uh, uh, partisan framework, people who are on the right will argue for gun freedom and take away abortion choice. They want gun choice and no abortion choice. People on the left will argue exactly the opposite. And so here comes a practicing politician trying to figure out how Uh, to speak to the entire population and how do they talk to a population where each uh, side is divided. And in fact, you can go so far as to find individuals divided in themselves. Uh, Now let's go to a different issue such as the economic question and you'll find or not you you look at the economic question. You'll find people who will call themselves economically conservative, but socially progressive. Now how does an economically conservative socially progressive, Uh, individual vote when they are presented only with the choice between a conservative and a progressive candidate. How do you vote? Now the point that we make is 70% of the public says we can't. Now that undermines our situation fairly uh, uh, obviously, you can see it, because vast numbers of people don't know where to stand individually. The whole system of democracy rests upon the idea that every individual has a stake in every issue. Now, if you argue that every individual has a stake in every issue, and they are always in the same place in relation to all other individuals on every issue, you can see that you're heading for trouble. Now, the the matrix uh, argues that uh, people who identify on the left uh, have uh, chosen to be there for whatever particular reasons they've chosen to be there, and the people on the right who identify on the right choose to be on the right for whatever particular reason they chose to be there. So let's look at left and right from two points of view. Uh, One left-right point of view is um, uh, based on your family. Most most, uh, uh, demographics demonstrate that individuals are related to their current political choice, left or right, based on their family upbringing. Now, before anybody jumps to any conclusion, understand that does not mean that somebody who grew up in a Democratic family is going to be Democratic, or somebody who grew up in a Republican family is going to be Republican. Because one of the things that goes on in individuals, not only do they try to embrace their families, they also resist their families. And so you will find a whole lot of people around who say, I used to be a progressive, but now I'm a conservative or who I used to be a conservative now I'm a progressive and if you look closely you'll find across the board on the on the numbers that the generally speaking the family upbringing and experience uh which includes all of the things around the family family neighbors uh you know the town you grew up in who what group were you in a union or were your management all that kind of, all of those things shape the way the individual decides to be either left or right now on the other side of the coin, you have people who are motivated for order or freedom. Now what the great pro, the great political problem of uh, the West, at least, I and mean, we believe this applies across the board. We think these are fundamental forces. So we think when you see Belarus going through what it's going through, or even Putin having the biggest demonstrations that he's ever had, that, that the Russian government has ever had since democracy uh, was alleged since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, or if you can look at uh, Venezuela, or you can look at uh, Brazil or Philippines, you look anywhere, Spain, where you are, you're living in in Barcelona, you can see it right there in Barcelona, where there's a order freedom debate underway. Now, the whole political idea or, or exercise is how do we integrate the notion of order and freedom? Now, if you have only freedom, you will eventually end up in a state of chaos or, or anarchy, if you have only freedom if you have only order, you will end up in a state of authoritarian dictatorship. You'll, you'll end up in, uh, in oppression. And so in order to avoid uh, oppression or anarchy or oppression or chaos, every individual, every group, every geographic setup is working on how much freedom and how much order can we create. So that in the situation that we're in now, politically, across the world, you can see that the forms that have held that in balance since the Second World War are actually now so frayed that they're coming apart. And then any particular uh, political structure has its own way of responding to that uh, disintegration that we're seeing. Which, by the way, uh, can easily, from a transpartisan point of view, can easily be seen as an opportunity, as a moment of hope, as the individual saying, "We are now able to have more freedom, and maintain more order than we were using." In our case, uh, we, the West, we have uh, 18th-century ideas with 19th-century forms filled with 20th-century energy. So it's like we're out there at the gas pump with a horse. We're trying to put the huge individual expression that's underway uh, into the clogging horse and carriage that was the 18th century's primary way of getting around. If we look at it that way, what we see going on is much more hopeful than if we insist upon looking at it in the left-right duopoly. Uh, it, it's a serious problem if we look at it that way. So um, the, the quadrants give us a sense on any given issue of where we stand. And then you can, you can just work it just like you work any algorithm. You can start working it and you'll see where people begin to uh, cluster. And uh, we have an article in the Transpartisan Review uh, by uh, New, uh, it's a New York Times, we comment on a New York Times article where, they, uh, where he analyzed some uh, work that's being done uh, by one of the think tanks in Washington Uh, analyzed the work and showed that there was a group of voters that um, were mysterious. They were called, uh, they voted for Obama and then for Trump. And it looks like there was between six and nine million of them. And they look like they are the key to switching the election uh, in 2016 uh, from the election in 2012, that nine so-called six to nine million. That's all, done, uh, using, um, that's all done using. That's all done using graphics. you using algorithms, using numbers, uh, and there's this big blank place, which is the. Uh, it's a. It's a uh, place where uh, there's no. No. There's nowhere for them to go, and so it looks like now. What's most interesting to me about that, and we have some talking about this in the Transporters Review. Is that uh, there's some new um, analytical work being done uh, that has looked at those uh, so-called swing districts, places that voted for Obama and then for and then for Trump. Uh, those districts, it looks like there are not, not any voters that voted or very few voters that voted for Trump after they voted for Obama. The districts went that way, but it looks as if different people voted in those districts. What we believe and what we're hypothesizing and what the solution voter uh, aspect of the, uh, of the solution voter initiative is looking at is that were there solution voters there who stayed away from the polls, some of them in the Obama period and election and some of them in the Trump election. So that in fact, those districts shifted by virtue of one group voting in one election, but not the other. So that analysis was done by one uh, political, uh, one, one, one work, of, uh, uh, work was done. And um, what appeared to be the case uh, was that different people were voting. Uh, she predicted uh, the elections starting very early in uh, 2018, uh, predicted uh, a 23 shift vote uh, in the House and basically, it was one off. It was the most, uh, most important um, uh, observation of the election. We believe, from the transpartisan point of view, that the system, the whole system, uh, not only the American system, but across the world, is groping toward a new level of expression from individuals about how to integrate freedom and order. And they are much less concerned about that than they are about being left or right, or Democrat or Republican, or in whatever political party there is. So that, 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 that that's the quadrant framework. You can read more about the specific quadrants. Uh, the order right tends to uh, affect, it, it tends to believe that orders comes from tradition, from religion, from, uh, from uh, uh, mores, uh, from communities, uh, the uh, order left tends to believe that it comes from the application of law and from um, rationality and from science. Uh, that's the, that would be the order left and order right. The, the free left's uh, idea is, uh, is uh, for uh, individual expression uh, about the individual choices, massive choices, Uh, The the freedom rights argument is, and and I'll I'll tell you, it's very specific. You can see it. The the free left tends to be socially free. They tend to have, they want to have their, their, the the, the touchstone issue there is, of course, right to choice. Um, But there's a whole opening about individuals, what's going to be called the social progressives. The uh, free right individuals Argue. Uh, I, I remember we had a, a summit between uh, free left and free right folks, and the free right people who were from the Libertarian Party uh, said, uh, "We're the party for um, we're the party for uh, pot, uh, pot, pot pistols and porn." Uh, <laughs> that was the Libertarian group. That's the that would be the so-called free right group, yeah. um, and the 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 free left is um, is for things that are. Uh, a, a choice uh, activities that are in some ways the opposite of the kinds of things that the free right is, uh, is, is for uh, not, not necessarily free right but the order right the right. Uh, so what I'm saying is that any individual on any issue might be uh, different and put, pull them out of their, their the, the, the left- right framework uh, mm-hmm. We got, we ran a, uh, we do a lot of work in the area of food. That was what the Nader report was. The Food and Drug Administration got involved in food. What is our food policy? And we move in the direction of um, uh, organic food, biodynamic farming, uh, and we do this. These, we do this for for transpartisan political reasons to create a to create a place where the 70% solution voters can actually articulate something that can be considered in the policy alternatives. And uh, so we, uh, we did a t-shirt uh, that was, it said, um, it said uh, 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 sex, organics, and rock and roll. Uh, the, the, the concept that we're at is that there is a way that the public is actually groping toward solutions. And the system is structurally opposed to that. It's, it's, it, this system was not designed to handle the subtleties of the 21st century's problems. Uh, and you see it in the structured racism. It's structured racism that is causing so much of the racial divide. You see it in, uh, in sexism, structured sexism. Now, we think of these things as, um, uh, like, we think of sex as uh, a, a gender, uh, uh, a, an individual man-woman question. But it's a personal identity question. And personal identity across the board is what's being expressed outside the political process, and the politics is trying to absorb it. And this is going on across the world. I mean, this is our transpartisan argument. And we're saying that the tools are there, if you look, the tools are there to understand how this actual movement toward individuation can be integrated into a higher demand for better order. Uh, You can integrate those and come up with a political outcome that actually uh, moves us toward the resolution of problems that we've actually inherited since the mid-19th century. I mean, the Industrial Revolution took hold basically in the 1840s, and it moved in a direction of addressing what at that time was thought to be the most important problem, which was a material want. Not having enough to eat, not having enough clothing, not having enough housing. Uh, the the, uh, ability to uh, get stuff, to, to have things, was extremely important on the political agenda in the 1840s. And this is in the United States, I think, across the West, and I believe also across globally. And the question was, how do we organize our society so that we can get a bunch of things? And we did. I mean, we've gotten more things than you could possibly imagine. But it was assumed at that time that the not material part of life was was solid was in, was was there it was the underlying driving thing upon which everything rested and we put our social and political and individual attention into satisfying our material needs and then we continued to do that and we got more and more and more and more involved in that and then we came through the Second World War and out the other end and had the biggest prosperity that anybody had ever imagined, because we were operating almost exclusively in the material realm, as far as our institutions were concerned. Um, our, our, pers- our personal values and our personal lives and our personal well-beings and so forth were considered to be private. And one of the big uh, debates, of course, is that there's an argument from one team that says the government should stay out of that stuff. And the other team says government has a role to play in that stuff. And so and by the way, you'll find them on both the left and the right government, small government on the left and right, big government on the left and right. And that's why, for example, if you elect uh, leaders from the left right spectrum, you'll get always everybody who runs for politics in the duopoly is a pro order person. So ending up with, uh, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, in the White House uh, or in Congress, you will always end up with uh, budget deficits going up. You'll end up with uh, the government being used to advance the, uh, p- the economic interest of whoever it is that's in power. And that advancing that economic interest will tend to compromise away the non-economic interests. And then we get these, these partisan battles. And the, the, the so-called solution voter group that's attempting to articulate itself is uh, saying, we don't like that. We want to have order. Yes, we want jobs. Yes, we want work. Yes, we want, but we also want to have our, uh, our uh, spiritual lives, our emotional lives, our personal lives, our love lives, all of that subjective stuff. We want that to be protected as well. We don't want to be in a situation where we're constantly uh, battling in the streets or in the suites or wherever we're battling in our, around our dinner tables over stuff that should actually be our personal choices. So that's a, that's, we believe that's what the, the solution voters moving toward and that's where our system is, is, is uh, leading.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for that. I, um, I particularly resonated when you used the word individuation. It made me think of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And how maybe collectively, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Maslow, Abraham. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way, you know, there's this hierarchy of needs where we have on the basic level, this is for people who don't know about it. On the basic level, we have uh, things like food and water and shelter. And as you move up the hierarchy, which is shaped like a pyramid, you get to things like individuation and uh, transcendence and community and self-transcendence even on the top and um, what, what you're talking about with regard to the movement of, um, from a 19th and 18th century conception of um, the role of politics in life to a more 20th and 21st century conception, it seems like collectively we're, we're striving to move up that hierarchy of needs. And um, maybe we see that in these incipient movements that were occurring just before COVID-19, where there were protests all over the world. I mean, in in uh, the States, in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Africa, everywhere. And um, I think that that's also a sign of what you're describing, that people are frustrated with the system not being able to accommodate them. And maybe the voter solutions, uh, process reminds me of, of something I've been discussing with my friends recently, which is kind of um, using the analogy of uh, acupuncture for political problems. In other words, acupuncture relies, as I'm sure you know from, from your work, but maybe our audience doesn't know, it relies on, on placing needles on strategic points of energy meridians on the body. Uh, these are theorized uh, to exist, but they seem very effective in experimental data. Um, so there's plenty of support for the idea. So maybe voter solutions is kind of a political acupuncture where you apply these solutions at strategic points, at strategic uh, uh, points in political meridians, and you achieve these, these uh, systems-wide solutions.
1: Well, what you've just said uh, opens up several lines of discussion for uh, explaining how and why I stand where I do now in the transpartisan framework. So to begin with, I mean, I'm going to respond, you didn't ask me a question, but I have to jump in. Uh, I'm going to respond first uh, by, first of all, our knowledge as individuals comes primarily in, in my belief from our experiences. We learn most by our experiences education is designed to give us a broader range of experiences than we have without education, but we are constantly experiencing things that cause us to uh, adjust or uh, recognize or reflect upon. Uh, So uh, I believe that each individual is doing that constantly, all the time. They're they're just going around picking up stuff and putting it in, and sometimes they know where it came from, sometimes they don't, but it, it resonates with them in some way. So, for example, in my case, personally, as an individual, uh, I uh, took on this idea of looking at the food industry and how it was operated. That's what Nader and I agreed upon when we met. And I started my process and I learned about the food, inf- food uh, aspects of the law, the drug aspects of the law and so forth. And where did the places that led? Inexorably following logic was to acupuncture. Acupuncture, and there's a reason why it led there, but just think of just think of stepping in and saying, How do you integrate freedom and order from both the left and the right? How do you do that? And you look for things. And so my path took me along the path to acupuncture, and I ended up being the lawyer for the group of consumer and producer acupuncture users. This is the needle manufacturers, and we applied to the FDA to have acupuncture needles recognized as a legitimate legal device under the American Food and Drug Act. And um, in fact, they did. Now, what's interesting to me is that occurred in 1996. Acupuncture needles were on the market from ni- in the United States, so well, all the way back to the 18, early 1800s, you get acupuncture needles one way or another. But all the way through, acupuncture needles were available but illegal after the 1938 act, actually after probably the 1906 act, they were illegal. So that all the people who used acupuncture from 1971 to 1996 were using an illegal device. Now, I use that as an illustration of the kind of problem that we're dealing with because the people who were using acupuncture, which turned out to be quite a number because um, uh, we ended up with 45 states adopting laws making acupuncture legal in the states, but the federal government, they were still illegal. So we had to apply to the federal government and say, we want them to be illegal, we want them to be illegal nationwide. Uh, and then that happened. From 71 to 96, people were using acupuncture needles in this country, but illegally. Uh, the way that works, and it's at the core of, of one of our huge problems, Uh, The FDA issued statements from 1971 to 1993 or so, four different statements saying, while it is true that acupuncture needles are illegal, uh, they are so far down on our list of priorities that we are not going to get to doing anything about it, therefore, uh, don't worry, basically. An enormous amount of our law is written in those terms. We do a lot of things in uh, practical daily ways because the government says we're, we're gonna turn our eye the other way. Uh, that's what happened with acupuncture needles. I think they are a prime uh, example of how we're operating and what you end up with, let's take the matrix and look at it again. What you end up with is, the administ- that we have what you, what's, what's called the administrative state, which the, which the uh, right, very much dislikes. They are after the administrative state. The left summons itself on defense, uh, for defending the regulatory agencies and saying they're being, uh, they're being undermined and so on and so forth. On the other side, you'll have the left is highly opposed to the administered market monopolies, the administered market. It's the identical situation only in the market side so that you get over on the administrative state side, a small group of individuals gets control of the levers of the state and they control everything that comes out of the state. On the market side, you get a bunch of people who are in control of the market and they manipulate and move and get things to come out of the market that are their kind of things and the and the and the the left really fights against the administered state. I'm sorry, fights against the administered market. The right really fights against the administrative state. Now the, the concept that we say is there is a role for the administered state, the, uh, the administered market, the free state, free markets, all of those things have to be integrated together in order for the, there to be a social resolution. And uh, so that, the first thing I'm saying on what you just said was, acupuncture needles are not only are they a good metaphor, they are in fact a practical example of exactly what we're talking about. Uh, And it was very interesting because we brought massive science to the FDA about why acupuncture needles actually do in fact play a role in our healthcare system. Uh, At this point, we have about 25,000 uh, acupuncturists practice in the United States, the uh, uh, the uh, the board that certifies acupuncturists is right in there with all the other medical boards. You can go look them up on the internet. That's something that was created between 1981 and 1996. I mean, a, a, a work by a community to do that. Um, now, let me go on though and say, you learn, I think, you learn how life works by watching what's going on around you, knowing who your neighbors are and so forth. I said that at the beginning, that's where politics comes from. So I got introduced to Maslow uh, way back in 19, uh, it was probably 1966 or 67, because Maslow's daughter lived two houses down from me at Ohio State University. And I said, well, oh, What are you? For? What is she? Yo, know, I don't probably was a milk. No. House party or something, you know, just sitting around getting to know the neighbors. Well, what does your father do? Or <laughs> who are you? I'm Maslow's daughter. Well, yeah, who's Maslow? And then she started telling me, and uh, her, and and, uh, and I, I started reading the stuff. Lo and behold, just as the acupuncture needle issue went, as I described it, the Maslow hierarchy is operating, and what you described is exactly what is underlying the individuation of our politics. So uh, in our wanderings, uh, you know, that we've done uh, doing politics and so forth, uh, we ran across something uh, at uh, SRI, formerly the Stanford Research Institute, uh, called the Values and Lifestyles Project. And this was a, and it still exists, it's there, I mean, it's a, now it's a business, it's a consulting business, but it's there, you can find it, it's Values and Lifestyles Project, you look it up. And what they did was create a, a way of using the Maslow hierarchy on society. And so they looked at it from a socio-political economic point of view, and they ended up with uh, they, they use this, the very same uh, uh, development of the, um, of the uh, uh, pro- progress from you know, the lowest to the highest as people become more and more individual. And they found, using data and so on, they found uh, the uh, inner directives. These are the individuation people, the inner directives. And they were at, the, I think, the third or fourth uh, tier of the Maslow hierarchy is where the individual starts to differentiate. But they discovered that operating economically and politically, there was something called the inner directives. Um, the inner directives, uh, you could, at that point, you could look at what was going on, 81 to 86 or 81 to 90, whatever. You could look at the inner directives in the market, and you could see a tiny little blip. And if you were smart and understood this whole hierarchy, you could predict what the market was going to be five years from now. And so what happened is, uh, when they when this when they were starting to look at this mid uh, mid fifties uh, uh, I mean mid, uh, I'm sorry mid seventies uh, when you started looking at it and through the that post Second World War up to say the mid seventies there was a there was a thing which was this tennis shoe market, and kids was the big tennis shoe brand. It existed there as a brand. And so here they went looking at it and they saw all of a sudden there was an individual differentiation going around uh, on around tennis shoes. Then they became athletic shoes. And then all of a sudden they became Nike. Now that's all demonstrable in data, which we're saying uh, is going on in the political framework. So that what we're seeing right now in these, all this demonstration and stuff that's going on around the world, uh, we're seeing the beginnings of the first part of opening up the political marketplace. Uh, it's interesting when the uh, Values and Lifestyles Project put this all together, they came up with the inner directives, but the inner directives divided into two groups, one group was the socially conscious interdirecteds, And it was 11% of the population. That group, the socially conscious interdirected 11% is the ones that started saying, I want different kind of tennis shoes. And they started saying a whole lot of other things too. One of the other things they said, which was really fascinating is I want organic food. It was a really interesting because I'm doing my organic food. I'm doing my food policy thing. And all of a sudden there's this group uh, at that point, 1968, was when I started that report, uh, the FDA was trying to restrict access to dietary supplements, and 55,000 people had sent letters in to the FDA, and this is when you wrote, they sent writings to the FDA saying, no, don't do that. I'm saying to myself, 55,000 people, I went back to Nader, and I said, and, and by the way, the FDA official working on it, I said, well, that's just 55,000 quacks, so I went to Nader, and I said... Um, they say they're quacks, What's your what do you think? You say, 55,000 consumers. And so all of a sudden you had a constituency. Well, what happened in 1969, the mean age of a shopper in a so-called uh, health food store, that's what they were called, health food stores. And by the way, they were considered to be right wing. They were considered to be the children of Dr. Strangelove. Remember Dr. Strangelove believed that his water was being poisoned by fluoride basically. These are all crazy nutty people on the right who didn't know anything and they should all be marginalized and pushed out. Nader says, wait, they're consumers. Okay, so we start looking. In 1969, the mean age of a shopper in a health food store dropped one decade. This is a demographic that's impossible. You cannot create this by doing advertising or right? something happened. There was a, and then what I'm saying is that that was an example of the individuation that had been taking place and continued to take place after that, starting after the Second World War. At the end of the Second World War, there was a condition, decision that needed to be made. Do we go back to the way things were before the Second World War? And do we have the women go back to home and stop working? Uh, Do we have uh, a a narrow economy that only produces a few things? Uh, And uh, the, um, the, the industry of the Second World War had just gone haywire in terms of production. It produced more than you could possibly imagine. It had all these facilities and capacities. They now needed to have consumers. And so after the Second World War, uh, we can't, For example, uh, the uh, eight-hour uh, eight workday uh, had not been a, a, a predominant, predominant before the First World War. We had more disposable time and more disposable money, money and we ended up buying more and more things, and the uh, result of other examples would be the buying of organic food. It's going on and has been going on in every single industry. There are 10 things that people spend 85% of their money on, every one of them is differentiating or individuating, and the political process is dragging behind. It's not able to keep up with the way the public is expressing itself on all kinds of issues. You can see it. You can see the differentiation in gender questions. I mean, everybody's a, a gender individual. The idea that there is one set that's men and one set that's women is a leftover from that 18th century way of thinking. The same thing is true about food, for example, just as we were just, I was just talking about organic food. I mean, biodynamic food, Uh, has been a marginal economic force, significant, but marginal, and very much going, being sought after more and more by individuals. And so one of the things that's having to happen is break down the structure of industrial food that's causing us to be in a food situation that is less than optimum for individuals. But you can find that in housing, you can find it in travel, you can find it in education, you mentioned uh, another third thing you said is up until COVID, uh, we could see this going on. But COVID-19 is an expression of that. It's an expression of that in that we have what is basically an industrialized health system, which makes it very difficult for individuals to actually relate to it. And so uh, one of the things I got involved in in 1970, again, working on the NATO program, uh, that I was working on, uh, looking at the FDA, was how vaccines were regulated in 1970. And I was called by the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, John Gardner, and said, "When I was secretary, obviously something was wrong in vaccine regulation. And I, w- would you be willing to look into it?" So I started a project. You know, we got a project, we got people, we started looking into it, and lo and behold, it was the biggest morass of regulatory. Uh, corruption and fusion and disorientation that you could possibly imagine. As a result, it was, it was a, an agency that was regulating vaccines that was at the National Institutes of Health, which is a research institution. And its primary mission was to create more and more and more vaccines. Well, that meant that vaccine safety and purity, were highly suspect in 1970. And we ended up with congressional hearings and Justice Department involvements and so forth, culminating in the 1976 swine flu, uh, I call it debacle, when the government said we were going to inoculate 200 million people and ended up stopping after 49 because so many people were getting sick and dying uh, in the vaccine framework. Uh, all I'm saying, and that is not a pro or anti-vaccine argument, that's a pro or anti-proper regulation argument. How do we use the law? And so if you go back to our matrix, here we have a group of people on the la- on the right, let's say on the right, who are very, very arguing, this is be more or less libertarians, but they argue very strongly, uh, they're not the libertarians, the the, the pro-abortion, uh, the, pro- ch- uh, the, the anti-abortion group, they're arguing very strongly that there's a group of people arguing very strongly that the government should not interfere with their right to carry guns. On the other hand, they should not, they should stop people from having abortion choice. My argument is either pro-gun or pro abortion that I'm making. I'm saying you, the government's going to either restrict or permit. It, it, it can't do one thing in one area and another thing in the other area. It's going to have to, It's got to be cohesion or you're going to get social unrest. And that's what, we're, that's what we have, we don't have cohesion, we don't have a standard for how we decide what we permit and what we restrict. Now, in our system, the Supreme Court's supposed to do that. And uh, if you look carefully at what the Supreme Court's doing, and we have an article in the Transpartisan Review about this, it was written uh, by a lawyer in um, Pittsburgh who uh, studies gun laws. In fact, if you look carefully at what the this court decided in the Heller decision, which is hailed as a Second Amendment case, Actually, what they decided, and they've repeated this now, they said, we decided that the individual has the right to have a gun in their home for self-defense. That's what they decided. And they said, this is what we decided. Now, the pro-gun people argue that's a Second Amendment right that has been vindicated. Uh, The uh, people on the left tend to argue that that's uh, a bad decision on that grounds. Uh, There's a transpartisan position that says, basically... The right to hold a have a gun in the privacy of your home and the right to have an abortion are both grounded in the right to privacy, which exists in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, to the extent that the courts recognized it. That's a real, that's a legitimate, major, significant debate. Our point is that in the left-right argument, where you have people fighting for guns and against abortions, and against guns and for abortions, and they call that a political debate. And then you got to pick which one of them you're going to be. Am I going to be pro gun, anti abortion, or am I going to be pro abortion, anti gun? I'm not going to be either one of those things. And so uh, we're saying 70% of the public's not going to be either one of those things. And that 70% has not, right now, got a way of being heard and it's coming out in the in the racial issues it's coming out in the uh, uh, gender issues Um, it's coming out in the economic issues because economically we've been doing the same thing Uh, either your management or your labor Uh, where our point is that everybody produces and everybody consumes you've got to integrate them you cannot separate them if you if you say i'm going to be pro-consumer and anti-labor pro-consumer anti-management your system's not going to work. They all have to work together and they do. And then what's happening is they're working in a bumpy way. And that bumpiness is the thing that uh, is causing all of this stuff that's going on. That's disruptive in the society.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a time of great ferment. Um, I I would love to continue this discussion, but I know we set an hour, so I don't want to take any more of your valuable time. Um, I, I appreciate so much uh, this this opportunity, I'm sure our audience will benefit greatly from from the richness and uh, and the the wide and the deep scope of, of what you what you recounted today. You said
1: that we said that we might be able to go over uh, for a little bit. So oh. another cup, just another two or three minutes.
0: Oh, okay. Um, maybe you can. Well, we were going to discuss either nationhood, uh, the, the, advent- and the sort of evolving concept of nationhood, but I believe that's a little complex. Um, automated. Well, 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 yeah.
1: Well, on some, of those, on some of those things, why don't we just have another opportunity? Uh, but I wanted to, I just wanted to wrap up by saying there are, in fact, pragmatic, politically viable options existent in our current situation that a transpartisan voice Uh, would uh, be promoted by. And I just want to tick off a couple of them just very quickly. I started to say left and right are arbitrary uh, ideas. Uh, Left and right uh, go back to the French Revolution, uh, when individuals uh, that were interested in whether the king should be executed or not, organized themselves around their feelings on that issue. And uh, so uh, the people that were on the left were the ones that said execute the king, that's the right of the hall in which they were all sitting, Uh, the people who are on, that's the left, and the people that were on the right of the hall that they were all sitting said, no, we don't want to execute the king. And it's important to understand that people who were pro-freedom were on both sides and people who were pro-order were on both sides. So that Thomas Paine wrote a pamphlet saying, save the king, even though he was one of the most radical, throw out the monarchy. And uh, that it's very, so I just put that out there. Uh, what came out and was understood there in, uh, this is in, uh, the, you know, this is in 1789, and then uh, over the next decade or so, uh, it was learned that for mathematical reasons, you cannot ascertain what a group desires by aggregating the desires of the individual. This is known in today's politics as Arrow's paradox. You can go look it up. And Arrow's paradox is if you have three or more choices, you will never come up with the choice of the group by figuring out, aggregating what each of the people who are making one of those choices decides. That is, if you vote, a vote for in a election that has more than three, tro- three or more choices, you will not come up with the choice that the group collectively would have made. You will always come up with the wrong choice. Understand, you will always come up with the wrong choice. That's a structural underpinning of partisan politics. The movement that's addressing that at the moment is ranked ranked voter choicing, ranked choice voting, I'm sorry, ranked choice voting. And uh, it now is used in Maine for all state elections, it's used in many cities around the country, but it's a different kind of logic. And uh, it's important to know that that's happening. So, what I'm saying is that's a practical way of addressing. How can the transpartisan voice come into the world and participate effectively? So we need to recognize that possibility. Uh, secondly, uh, there's all kinds of proposals being made. There's a basic income, lifetime education, uh, health care that are being said to be things government could manage. And um, the answer that comes back continuously is there's not enough money. How can we pay for all of that? Well, again, in the Transpartisan Review, we have an article uh, that's there, several, in fact, about something called uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, automatic transfer tax, the automatic payment tax. It's a, it's a it's a system in which you tax at the point of purchase. You put a two percent tax, a two tenths of a percent tax, on every transaction for everybody eliminate the tax collection program, and end up with more money in the coffers of government than you get today from state, federal, and local taxation combined. And there, there by doing that, as your economy develops and grows, you have increasing amounts of money for education, for health, uh, for uh, 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 providing uh, a way for people to actually fulfill their material needs without having to fight uh, claw and nail uh, in the streets or uh, pickets and so forth to get management to give them some rights. Uh, These these ideas are uh, cutting across everything that's going on in our culture right now. Uh, And so uh, I just want to make it clear that this individuation that's driving everything, and has been driving, I mean, the American Revolution is a statement for the individual. That's the point of the American Revolution. It's the point of the French Revolution. The the point of the Western Renaissance and Enlightenment is more and more recognition of individual individual rights, individual expression, and so forth. It has to be contained inside a framework of order, so that's what we've been doing politically. We are on that path, and we're going there now. And I think uh, the COVID event gives us an opportunity to to figure out, uh, once again, how we integrate freedom and order Because when you have a free society making enlightened choices, you come up with the best outcomes. We don't come out with the best outcomes by having either government or the market uh, controllers ordering us to do things. Uh, So uh, if we can put them all together, we'll end up with something that can work. And there are things out there for us to work on. And the Solution Voters Project is working on finding those people and figuring out how they can have a place to vote so that the people who are in office are articulating their viewpoints uh, on solving actual, specific, particular issues. Now, one last point. (laughs) Sure. This is a teaser. (laughs) This is where the new technologies of information are having an enormous impact. They are individuation tools, and blockchain seems to be one that is making a major opportunity for individual expression. And that's something that is worth looking into. And again, uh, George Gilder, who is out there, and uh, generally speaking, a conservative, um, uh, but I believe making some progressive arguments, uh, is out there arguing that what we see today in uh, the information world, which basically is uh, uh, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, what we're seeing there is all collapsing. And that uh, in uh, 10 to 20 years, uh, those four names will be roughly uh, conscious in the society the way AOL is now. In the 90s, AOL was it. The answer, that was going to solve everything. Everybody's going to be an AOL person. It lasted about, when they merged with time, AOL time, uh, they managed to last less than a decade. Gilder's new book, uh, which is called uh, Life After Google, is laying out the underlying structural argument about why these things are going to disappear. It basically boils down to the fact that they're stealing our identity and and, and turning it into money, uh, and then they don't know what to do with the money because there's no system. They just have huge, huge bunches of money, and they don't know what to do with it. And as a result, uh, our individuation is being mined for money to do stuff, but nobody knows what should be done. And he's saying uh, that the blockchain uh, analysis, uh, which in a very, very, very interesting way is a new way of writing contracts. That blockchain approach gives us a opportunity to look at the world through this individuation lens. And uh, my suspicion from a political point of view is that as we see something like solution voters begin to take shape, we're going to see things like blockchain take shape in the technology world, and we're going to do some more uh, uh, developments that are along those lines with that, with that transpartisan group being able to be heard more uh, effectively, both in the, the political sector and in the economic sector. So I think I, I wanted to just get that last punchline in about all of the things that are possible because we are in a moment of enormous opportunity and uh, we're working our way through that. Uh, that includes COVID-19. This is a healing crisis for our culture. Healing crisis happens in all kinds of diseases. When you're, when you're in trouble, you get a high fever, and it breaks, and then the new stuff develops. That's what we're in the middle of right now, or in the beginning of, perhaps. And uh, uh, we're, this is going to happen, and uh, either we will survive the healing crisis or not. Uh, My bet is we will. And I think it's wise for everybody to plan as if they will, because it's very embarrassing to have survived and not have any plans.
0: (laughs) True, true. Okay, well, thank you so much, Jim. Um, Thank you, especially for that extra five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. No problem. And um, yeah, maybe we'll get to continue this discussion at some point, because I think there are so many points um, to be developed further. Again, Well, if we. Yeah. Uh, go to the transparters review. We'd love to start a dialogue
1: about this. We do have comments and we, you know, we, we, we are interested in having this dialogue go on and we think it will be valuable for everyone to, that wants to, to participate. So,
0: and thank you very much. Really appreciate this opportunity. Okay. Thank you so much, Jim.